Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a very, very bright man. And when I say a very bright man, why do I say that? Because I am always uh, in awe of people that you know went to Harvard because it's the opposite of, of what I did. I was the consummate C student, best case scenario. So uh, he, he is doing incredibly uh, productive things and filling an amazing niche in the lending space, uh, helping people 3X the amount they could borrow over their previous deal for a number of reasons, which we're going to get into a number of ways, I should say. He is the CEO of Diversified Lending Solutions, and he is Vernon Beckford. Vernon, welcome to Street Smart Success. So happy to be here. Thank you, Roger. You got it. We've had a nice little pre-show banter. So before you know, you explain to me how you got into this business, which I can't wait to talk about, especially given the the lending, you know, the the interest rate environment, how things have changed lately. But before we do that, tell me about the Vernon Beckford background story. Where where does Vernon hail from, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. So uh, originally from New York, uh, I was born in the Bronx, grew up in a suburb called Westchester County. And uh, I stayed in New York, went to Columbia and then said, you know what, I want to go into into Wall Street. So joined Credit Suisse and the real estate finance group. And the rest was history in terms of my love for real estate and finding ways to be involved in the industry. So that's where it all started. right here. And then from that point, my career evolved and went through a whole range of different uh, focuses in real estate. But the biggest pain point I'll tell you that I experienced from a very kind of early chapter in my career was that you join Wall Street, you get the opportunity to work on these really big transactions with household names that may even get on the Wall Street Journal. And then you say, well, it'd be great to do a deal with my friends and cobble together some money and, 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 and take all the skills that I've taken in Wall Street and apply it to kind of Main Street thinking. And it was so discouraging and frustrating to see that the the channels to get capital, whether that be on the debt or the equity side, for a small guy trying to, to do deals was just uh, dramatically different than the larger players on Wall Street. And so over the years, that, that was always something that st- stood out to me in that the overwhelming majority of real estate owners in this country are small operators, um, but they don't have the resources to unlock the potential of their businesses and grow because they don't have transparency into or access to uh, all the sources of, of capital. So that's ultimately what led me to, to launch Diversified Lending Solutions, which is the company I, I operate now, to help small, mid-sized operators scale their businesses and really unlock wealth creation potential, just not for themselves, but the communities in which they they operate and invest in. Okay, great, great explanation. So what, what does small to mid-size mean? Give me a sense of the scale you're talking about. Sure. So for us, it means uh, anywhere as small as a $1 million transaction that could be both on the residential investment side or the commercial side, going up to $50 million in transaction size. Okay. You know, I talk to, as you could imagine, a lot of, a lot of people and, and I try to talk to people 
the size that you're talking about, and then it goes up from there. I'm kind of more interested on the small side because it, it's more accessible to, frankly, to me personally. Uh, I think it's a, it's a much more accessible to a lot of my listeners or W-2 employees thinking, God, it would be great to get out of this trap and go buy a duplex. You know what I mean? So, so I, I've talked to a number of operators uh, in that, in that space. I haven't heard, it, it seems to me like, you know, that the debt side, if I've interpreted it correctly, uh, assuming that the deal makes sense, hasn't been that difficult, you know, as long as they're buying a property and they can demonstrate the right experience, et cetera, you know, et cetera. Is that not the case? And why is it? And what are, what are some specific examples where somebody has trouble raising? Well, especially the debt, because I assume, you know, that's kind of the, the side of the side that you work on. Sure. That's a great question. So there are a couple of variables. And when you think about what it means to get, you know, attractive debt, it could be attractive in terms of the interest rate, it could be attractive in terms of the size of the loan. It could be attractive in terms of the, the term of the loan itself or the flexibility in prepaying it. So there are a lot of factors that dictate whether a loan is quote unquote attractive or not. What I'll say is that if you have a cash flowing asset, that's usually the lowest hanging fruit to have the most straightforward process in obtaining a loan. And that's for obvious reasons. If there's in-place cash flow, there are leases, then a bank or an insurance company or whoever the lender may be could underwrite that risk reasonably easily because they can actually look and see there's been prior performance, there's been prior cash flows, and I can project with some, you know, margin of error what the future cash flows of that property will be and lend on that basis. So for folks that are just putting their toe in the water, that's clearly the, the easiest route to take. I will say that, uh, you know, all of us have, have seen a rapid increase in interest rates over, over the very short term. And what that translates into is that lending rates have in turn gone up. And so if you were just going to go out and buy a cash flowing asset at, let's say, a four cap, which is to say that the net operating income from that property relative to the purchase price is a yield of cash yield of 4%. Well, now that, you know, interest rates are well in excess of that, you know, it becomes a lot harder to justify buying at a four if you know that your interest rate on your loan is going to be six, six and a half. And so that business plan in of itself, I would say lending aside, that business plan has been harder to execute. And until sellers adjust their pricing to reflect yields that are more in keeping with interest rates, it'll be hard for buyers to justify buying, even if they wanted to buy that that property and get get a loan. Now, what I'd say is the shadow that's cast uh, across the whole industry is that all of that aside, the lending environment is much harder than it was. It is a lot more challenging than it was a year ago. And so there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes that that you, the buyer, probably aren't thinking about. Number one, many of the loans that, that lenders made recently had extension options. And so given how much volatility there's been in the economy, if you had one of those loans and you were a borrower, you're probably taking advantage of that extension option. So there's a lot less payoffs happening for lenders than there would be, which means there's less capital available for them to make loans. The other thing to think about is in many cases, we think of a lender as someone that just makes a loan and holds that loan for the life uh, of, of the mortgage. In many cases, they, they package it and sell it in the form of securities to Wall Street. But because of, again, the volatility in the markets, 
the uh, the pricing uh, that they would have to uh, sell those securities for is not accretive to them. And so in many cases, they can't uh, sell those loans and in turn, their balance sheets are clogged up. And so there are a lot of reasons that um, have prevented lenders from lending more money in this challenging environment. Banks, who are, who are generally the, the most common source of funding, effectively have been under pressure from regulators to scale back um, their lending activity um, and to maintain very healthy uh, balance sheets. So when you take that all in combination, even if you have a straightforward deal in today's world, it is not as straightforward as just knocking on a door, getting a loan that, that's very attractive, walking out and getting your deal funded. Okay. Appreciate that the explanation. So where do you then, Vernon, where do you guys come in uh, in this process then to, I guess, you know, provide value to your clients? Absolutely. So one of the biggest uh, issues I see is that operators kind of just try to will themselves into a better situation, right? They they fall in love with their deal and they said, I'm just going to call a thousand lenders until I get the answer that I want. And we found that that's usually not a very productive exercise. So the first thing that we add value in is we help uh, A, be a second set of eyes on, on an individual's deals to help filter the opportunity and make sure that they're looking at it through the right point of view. The second thing we do is we give them a realistic sense of what their options should and could be given the type of deal they're pursuing and the types of lenders that are going to be the most apt to fund that type of deal and where they'll fund it. That information may inform that, wow, I'm overpaying for an asset. I need to renegotiate the purchase price. I need to change the terms of my deal. And then A, and then B, okay, great. I have a sense as to what's realistic in terms of my financing so that I can actually model how much I will realistically expect to make on my deal. That's all before you even picked up the phone to call a lender. And if you don't do that work up front, you're going to waste a lot of your own time. From that point, the exercise is how do we take your deal and position it? We like to call it objection smoothing. How do we do all the objection smoothing up front so that we've taken all the risks and weaknesses of your deals thought through reasons um, that the lender should not be concerned or mitigants to those risks. We've done a full kind of write-up on you to make sure that they're confident with you as an operator and your expertise, and then walking that into the right um, houses, the right lending shops in order to actually engage in a process to get your loan terms. And then from the point that you've actually done that process and you've gone back and forth with those lenders, and it's a, it's a, it's a dance, right? Because it very seldom is it I'm going to share that information. The lender just says, okay, wonderful. Let me write you a term sheet with everything you want. Here, have it. It's a back and forth of answering questions, of, of helping clarify things. So that hopefully you get a, at least a term sheet, but hopefully multiple term sheets. And we can be in a process to work together to negotiate the best terms based off your business plan. And at the end of all of that, the goal is that you got an, a, a, a loan that was well synced with your business plan and helps you, A, get a much bigger loan that you probably would have been able to convince a lender to give you before which in turn will help you do bigger deals and make more profits down the road. Okay, fantastic. You know, I'd spent, you know, obviously a little bit of time, you know, preparing for this. Um, maybe it's obvious, maybe it isn't. But do, do you guys, so you guys are an advisory firm, but but do you guys also, you know, so in, in what you just described, you did a phenomenal job of explaining kind of what that means. But do you guys also, are you guys lenders as well? So what kind of how does all that stack up? Yeah, sure. Very good question. So we operate on a hybrid model. 
So the overwhelming majority of deals that, that fall in excess of $5 million, we act as an advisor, like I mentioned. On deals that are smaller than that, we have the capability in-house to make loans directly, specifically on residential investment properties and small multifamily properties. And one of the things that I take pride in is that for the small operator that often gets overlooked, we also provide what I would describe more bespoke services that often larger players will provide. Let me give an example. So we're one of the only players that I'm aware of that will fund earnest money deposit loans. Meaning if you're going out and you're making offers and you're going to have to put an earnest money deposit in connection of that deal to, to tie up the contract, you either have to do it on a soft or a hard basis. Soft meaning that it's refundable, hard that it's non-refundable. We have the ability opportunistically to provide loans to operators to fund their earnest money deposits in many cases because they may be putting out many offers at once. If one hits, they may not be in a position to exhaust their liquidity day one. So it gives them the flexibility to go out, be making offers, have the comfort and the peace of mind that they're not going to necessarily exhaust all their short-term liquidity. And then they'll have time once they put a contract to backfill um, and pay us off with the capital that they raise through their through their capital equity sources. So that's just one example of another area that we can be helpful. Another area, as you mentioned, folks that maybe have a W two or maybe they they are not yet at a point where they feel comfortable going at it um, alone. We're in a position where we can potentially bring joint venture partners to the table, either to help bring operating expertise on bigger deals than they're accustomed to or to actually share in the economics in terms of raising or contributing equity to the deal. Uh, another area that we can be helpful in is as you go to get a, a loan, in many cases, the, the, the bank will require that you, the, the owner, show network or liquidity of, of some uh, of some meaningful amount uh, in case certain, you know, to demonstrate in case certain bad things happen, that there's someone there that can actually cover those those losses. Well, in many cases, as you scale up and to do bigger deals, if you were doing a $2 million deal, now you're doing 10, 15, $20 million deals, but you need to show 10, 15, $20 million in net worth, that can be very daunting. So we can also be in a position to help bring folks to the table that would partner with you on your deals in order to meet those thresholds and help you get into kind of that next ecosystem of deals that are much bigger than you were before. So you can think of us in kind of three rungs of the, of the ladder, Roger. One is, yes, we can make direct loans. B, we can act as an intermediary to arrange loans. And then C, there are these all these other kind of bespoke areas that usually trip people up as they're trying to grow where we can, you know, on a case-by-case -case basis, um, help them as well. On the 5 million plus where you're providing those services, do you work as a percentage, uh, on a percentage of the loan amount? Is that how it's structured? Generally, that's right. Generally, it's a percentage of the loan that's originated. And that, you know, as an industry benchmark is usually a point. 1%. To the extent there are cases where the deal um, is incredibly complicated, has a really hairy story. In that case, it may be two points. Um, but one point is a good benchmark generically for us in the industry as well. Which is a bigger side of the house for you, Vernon, in terms of your business at this point? Is it is it the advisory services or is it the lending side, direct lending? It's the advisory business. And I think part of that is muscle memory. Both myself and my partner, Eric Andrews, started our careers on Wall Street. I started Credit Suisse. He started at Goldman Sachs. So I think it's in our DNA to be uh, structurers. I think it's in our DNA that 
all things being equal, if we think an operator is capable and skilled and they're trying to do a larger project, that's really kind of what excites us. Or if they're at that fulcrum where, you know, they're at a uh, hundred doors under management and they're trying to get to 300 and we want to help push to, to help them buy a 200 door project. That's always, I think, what really gets us fired up. That being said, the reason why we do the small balance lending is that we realize that it's very rare that someone goes from zero to 100 overnight. This is a business where people grow over time. And so we want to grow with our clients. And if it's helpful to them to make a one or $2 million loan as a step in the progression of growth, then that's where we want to be to meet them where they are. I got it. Okay. And then is it all multifamily? No. So um, we're, we're uh, multifamily and residential investment uh, lenders specifically on the advisory side, it's all property types. So, um, of late, I would say we're, we've been looking at industrial, very popular. We've been looking at, um, office, uh, primarily as conversion projects, either into multifamily or mixed use. Um, hotel has started to come back in the fold as folks have, have gotten more comfortable that they really took a beating so much during COVID that there's some interesting buying opportunities there. So by, by no stretch is it only multifamily, although multi has been kind of the darling along with industrial for the last, you know, you know, several years. Sure has. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. So out of curiosity, do you invest along with some of your operators? Do you have stuff that you do that you own personally, just out of curiosity? Yeah, the answer is yes. I mean, uh, both my, myself and my partner are real estate junkies. So we do invest alongside our, our uh, clients. You know, frankly, if there are opportunities to be on the operator side, we, we jump at it because we're, we're not, we're not folks who are just sitting in an office and, and crunch numbers all day. So my, my partner maintained a fairly sizable Airbnb rental portfolio. You know, I've invested in several multifamily projects, um, some mixed use projects. And so we're always looking, frankly, for an opportunity to uh, participate in deals. And if we can add uh, value via our operating expertise to a project and step into a joint venture ourselves, that's always something that, that we're very interested in exploring as well. Got it. So you guys are kind of like 180 degrees. You, you have tentacles in, in, the, in the, whole, the whole process. Geographically, you know, I know you're in New Jersey is uh, a large share of your, you know, transactions in that part of the country or is it equally dispersed or what does that look like? You know, it's a good question. And it's funny because both my partner and I are based in, in the tri-state area. And the funniest thing is that, I mean, for, for a range of reasons, it's really been the mid-Atlantic and the southeast that have been the, the biggest source of our, our deal flow. In the southeast, I would say, or in the south, 
you know, the, 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 you know, the, the biggest concentration, you know, obviously again, with multifamily specifically value add multifamily, there've been a lot of folks that, who have really dipped their toe in the water to buy properties that are class C, B minus and convert them to B, B plus. And that's just been a massive influx of, of operators really trying to scale in that, in that sector. So we've seen a lot of activity there, whether it be the Atlantas of the world or the Houstons of the world or the Charlottes or Charlestons. A lot of folks interested and excited about the economic endowments of those markets, good airports, favorable business uh, environment, a lot of, you know, uh, inbound migration, lower cost of living, all of those factors have made those areas pretty compelling. And a lot of our clients kind of focus on those areas. Okay. Well, well, uh, up to this point in our conversation, Vernon, it's all been an intentionally very softball question. So you ready for the hardball question now? Yeah, let's, let's, let's hear it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Okay. So in, in those deals that you're describing, you know, the C-class, you know, heavy value add in those markets, you know, it's it's no secret that a lot, a lot of operators did pretty high leverage, uh, you know, bridge product. And um, I heard of late uh, that um, I think it's Finch said that like 23% of loans, pe- people are not going to be able to get refinanced because they're, you know, they're not going to be able to have meet loan covenants, et cetera. Tell me about your view of that. And, you know, I'm already start. I already, I'm a passive investor. I already got a notice from a guy in Austin that's saying that he's needing to bring in mezzanine debt, which is pushing everybody down in the stack. And OG oh, shucks, no more distribution. So I, I, I got that first adorable notice last week, but I think that that's what's going to be playing out. So I guess what's your just overall take on that? And that's my hardball question, Vernon. Yeah, no, this, that's, that's, that one is a, that's a very fair question. It's one I, we could spend the next uh, 20 minutes talking about because I know it's on top of mind for a lot of people. So the short end of the stick is this is what's going on. This is the background to what happened in your case. So operator A goes, buys property, right? And the whole story has been, I'm going to put in X dollars into this property. I'm going to take this class C, turn it to a B plus. And I'm going to be able to raise rents dramatically. And oops, by the way, I'm also in a market that's experiencing organic rent growth. So the combination of those two things will make this property really, really attractive. And if I was getting an $800 a month rent, I'm going to get a $1,200 a month rent after I finish my repairs. And people did that and they made a lot of money and they convinced themselves that they were good at it. And so then at some point when uh, the market started to cool, some of those projections started to look uh, too aggressive, right? So that's number one. So, so the income potential of the property may be not as great as was in initially anticipated. Now, on the other side of the equation, interest rates are going up gradually, 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 gradually. And then suddenly it's at a point where every lender, if you're smart, you're going to make a loan based off of what you think your loan could get refinanced. You know, you're never going to lend more today then you think someone tomorrow would loan in a refinance. So suddenly everyone was doing their modeling based off these higher interest rates and saying, oh, well, guess what? When the interest rates higher, we can't support as much of a, uh, of a loan. And so now folks that thought, okay, I'm going to be able to go out tomorrow and get a loan that will refinance this high leveraged bridge loan are realizing, oops, I'm not going to be able to get the same proceeds. 
That leaves them in a couple of scenarios. One, either they find another investor to come in and recapitalize the project, right? And be in a position to bring fresh money to the table. B, they sell the property, hopefully not at a loss, and just say, listen, I'm, I didn't necessarily reach the returns I wanted to, but at least I prevented as much of a loss as possible. Or three, they negotiate with their current lender and maybe extend it from some period of time and find some intermediate solution. And so all of the, the above is happening, which means I think for current investors, there will be some disruption. But in many cases, that disruption is somewhat softened by the fact that the, that the, that the sponsor does have the ability to sell the asset and that absent interest rates continuing to go up as much as they had assets, you know, are still on a relative basis more valuable than they were, were yesterday. The second piece is that there will be a huge amount of money and there's already a ton of money being raised to be that rescue capital, that gap capital. And so it's certainly not for a lack of money in the ecosystem that whether these deals will work out or not. It's just a matter of whether the existing ownership in those deals will be willing to accept as much pain as those new capital sources will dole out. And having to manage that versus keeping investors of theirs like yours um, or, or, or like you, Roger, on your deal, happy enough that you'd want to invest with them again. So that's the, the tightrope that, that folks that you invested in are going to have to walk and make a decision as to, A, is it better to sell? B, should I take rescue capital? And if I do, will Roger ever invest with me again? Yeah, well, I think in this case, um, you know, and I think his, his situation is representative of many. And by the way, in this case, he acquired the property in 2019 before it was really at its apex as the apex was really 2021 Q1 2022. So there's a whole host of people that are going to be a much worse situation than this particular particular sponsor he happens to be in Austin, which, you know, to your point, yes, organic growth. And then there was also some value add, uh, but he didn't have a choice. I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't get refinanced. He had to take that rescue capital. It wasn't even a, you know, I, I, I guess theoretically he could have tried and it was a $6 million injection. Theoretically, he could have tried to gone to his investor base for a capital call. There's no way he was going to be able to get $6 million out of people like me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I yeah. was n- no way on earth. So anyway, I mean, look, uh, you know, the, the smartest people and everything is clear in hindsight, but the smartest people did fix debt, let's face it, and just and, and just were willing to take much more conservative, lower returns and, and you know, people that just had the foresight not to, to take that interest rate risk. Or they did a floater with a, with a cap. It's funny. I could tell you a story. Right. A couple of years ago, we, we had a client. We said, listen, the floating rate is great, You're gonna, but how about you buy a cap? And the cap wasn't very expensive at the time relative to what it would have been today. And they said, ah, you know, it's going to be like 100, you know, whatever, 50, 100K. That's a lot of money. Da, da, da. We said, we get it. But you know, rates do go up. It's, it's easy to forget, you know, when you were kind of in such a low interest rate environment forever that rates do go up and they 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 passed. And now, you know, that cap today would have been, you know, probably 10 times as expensive. And they look back and they've been crushed on rate and they've had to recapitalize their project. 
And I said, you know what? If we'd listened and we bought the cap, we would have been sleeping better at night. And at the time, it just seemed like throwing bad money out the window. And um, I think a lot of folks did, did stuff like that because they just kind of took it for granted that rates would stay low, unfortunately. Let me ask you the dumb guy question point of clarification is... Um so even when somebody has, you know, had the foresight to buy the rate cap and now it's time for, you know, the next term of the loan, let's say it's they've hit two years and now it's, you know, now the thing um, goes into the first year extension, let's say, but they have a rate cap. So they're protected against it going higher than a certain rate. Right. Mm-hmm. But even then, aren't there don't they need to make hit certain metrics in order to get that extension, even at that predetermined rate in terms of, you know, you know, debt service coverage ratio and and debt yield, et cetera. Because my understanding is that's where a lot of people are going to get hit. They're just, you know, especially with debt yield, they're not going to be able to hit those metrics. And so at that point, you know, the cap rate doesn't really save the day. That's, that might be an oversimplification, but am I understanding it right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, there will be covenants in the loan that say you have to meet these thresholds of performance. And if not, we may not extend it or we may make other requirements to, to right size the issue. And we see that all the time today. And basically now, if you're, if you're a lender and you're tightening your suspend your belt and you're looking at, at your portfolio, you're saying to yourself, okay, how do I make sure from an asset management perspective I'm safe? So I'm going to look at all these deals and if there's even an iota of a violation of a covenant. I'm going to use that to my advantage to try to force something, maybe to recapitalize an escrow for debt service, maybe to, you know, um, to, to, to encourage them to pay down the loan um, to, uh, by some amount. Um, increasing the reporting so that I can get under the hood and see even more of what's going on. All of these things. So yeah, cap doesn't necessarily, is not a end-all be-all, but it certainly leaves you in a position from a debt service coverage and a debt yield perspective where, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're trending towards plan, that number will be much stronger than it would have been if you just let rates naturally rise with, without the cap. And that's really just it puts you in a better position, doesn't necessarily save you in every case, but it puts you in a much better position. And it saves you, frankly, from being in a position where you don't want to find yourself now um, at a, you know, at a negative debt service coverage ratio and, and, and now you're floating the property or, you know, you now being less than a 1-0 coverage triggers something with the lender where now you need, need to do certain things. You want to be in a position where you're not that defensive and now just chasing, chasing after all these fires you got to put out. If you had to guess, uh, in terms of, you know, some of the aggressive borrowers or, or, or borrowers that borrowed with, you know, 80%, you know, loan to value that acquired properties, let's say in 2021, early 22, what percentage of those you think are going to be, ha- have trouble with this aspect of their financing? I mean, I think, you know, I think it'll be a very healthy number. You know, I, I don't want to, say a majority, but you know, there will certainly be a very common uh, happening. doesn't mean that I necessarily think that they're going to lose money on the deals, mind you, or that, you know, that that they won't be able to find a way to, to navigate it. In many cases, I think what will happen is the extend, you know, I, I went through the first down, the last great, you know, recession where there was a term of extend and pretend. 
which is basically time heals all wounds. So I don't want to take back the asset. And so I'm going to do everything in my power not to take it back and, and, and allow more time for the situation to resolve itself. I think we'll see a lot of that where, where folk, where lenders will, you know, limp along and let these things kind of play out. I think there's a view that, listen, this is largely interest rate driven, that interest rates will have to moderate at some point. And when we have more visibility to that, there'll be more transaction volume. So why take a loss today and and, and force a situation uh, if you don't have to? And frankly, like you said, a lot of the deals that got done, you know, still were the beneficiary through COVID of, of, of healthy appreciation. So it's not a foregone conclusion that they're going to lose money on their on their basis relative to where they got in the deal. What scares me the most is the situation you mentioned, where if you just bought an asset, you know, nine months ago, you know, and 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 you're you're saying, wow, rent growth isn't great, and the environment is really kind of choppy. Um, where does that leave me on a two year loan? If you know, it, you know, uh, those situations, you know, give me a lot more pause. But I, I do think we're there are operators that are going to take lumps. But frankly, like you said, it was hard over the last decade not to make money in value-add multi anyway. It's been a, it's been a really strong ride. So net-net, you know, I think we're still in a place that there's going to be issues, but uh, it's, it's by no means, I think, the apocalypse. Got it. Are, in, in terms of this dynamic, and, and I appreciate that perspective, and I, and I think it's shared too by, by a lot of people, are there other assets where the lending was as aggressive, uh, the leverage was as high, um, or or in those, because I know you have experience in industrial hospitality, and I'm sure others, were there any any uh, other asset classes that are similar in terms of the type lending product? I, I wouldn't surmise but that that would be the case, but I, but I ask you because you've certainly been doing it a lot more and know a lot more than I do. Sure. I would say the short answer is that multifamily has been the, the, the greatest source of, of high leverage um, um, of all the asset classes. Part of that is that Freddie and Fannie uh, being such an impo- playing such an important role in the financing markets, you know, have accommodated and allowed that. Um, part of it has just been that the cash flow profile is 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 very robust and people can underwrite it comfortably in the stability. So by and large, multifamily has been the greatest source of leverage. What I will say, going back to your other question about where this all lies, is that in as much as there may be some agita around um, the the refinanceability, you know, one of the areas where we've actually leaned in to help operators, frankly, to 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 is bringing in mezzanine debt to the table, bringing preferred equity to the table. In many cases, those can be attractive sources uh, of capital, especially if you're looking at a new acquisition. So in the same way that for some folks on existing deals or some agita, that agita actually translates into opportunity on the buy side, because A, there are sellers that, that are, are more apt to, to, to be flexible in pricing, given that we're not in such a wild and crazy, wonderful market. And so if you can go out and be opportunistic and maybe pick off some deals, and then you have creative capital that can actually help replace the senior loan that you would, you know, would normally be able to get, but can't. So you, you can find MES and PREF equity. There are going to be some really cool and interesting opportunities out there if, if you can kind of see past the noise and, and, and put the opportunity goggles on. Because I think that that, that debt is cost like 12, you know, it's obviously a range, but like 12% is a number I've heard, correct? 
Correct. So if you think of it, though, as an alternative to equity, depending on how far in the stack that that debt is, it can still be accretive to the deal. Yeah, ex- exactly. No, I, I so it's going to be it, it should be good times for those that have liquid over the next, you know, 12 to who knows, could be 36 months and depending on who you ask. And, and think of, and Roger, and one more point to that, even for your investors, think about your, your, or, or your listeners rather, who say maybe, maybe I have a W2 or maybe I'm just getting into this. Don't always look at real estate investing through the lens of equity. You don't always have to go and buy a property. Now could be a really interesting opportunity to be a lender to somebody where you can get a fixed rate of, of, of return that's really quite attractive relative to what you would get in the S&P 500. And you're actually at a better place in the stack because you're not the first dollar of risk. And so folks should be thoughtful in saying, hey, maybe I can be that preferred uh, preferred equity piece. Maybe I can be that mezzanine loan piece where I'm providing capital to operators at a really attractive rate relative to me actually even going off and doing projects myself directly. Yeah, exactly. Vernon, on the lending side, the, 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 the 5 million and less, you know, we're getting involved with guys that are just starting out. What is your source of money that you're lending out to your borrower base? Sure. So we have a pool of capital from various large institutions that view this asset class very attractively and say to themselves relative to where else they could be in other asset classes, the single family rental business, the fix and flip businesses offer better risk adjusted returns. And so they provide us with our base of capital that we then use to to make uh, the loans to these investors. Got it. If if you don't want to answer the following question, I, I really just, uh, you know, respect that, but uh, I'm going to ask the question, approximately how many loans do you guys have out? So we don't hold on balance sheets. So when we make a loan, we immediately will sell it um, to the counterparties that fund us. So our business model is a capital light model. And so we're largely insulated from a lot of the risks of other lenders because once we've originated the loan, we place it with one of our investors. Now you're really smart. So you, in all aspects of what you do, you're, you're kind of a to use the term loosely, you're kind of a middleman. So uh, that's very, very smart. Look, this has been, from my perspective, been a fantastic conversation. I learned a lot. If somebody wants to learn more about you in Diversified, how how did they do that? Sure. Um, They can reach us at at our website, dlsloans, one word, dot com, dlsloans.com. They can also reach me on LinkedIn. I'm quite active. So feel free to DM me. I'm always open to talk about a transaction um, and, and, and talk with either... To be operators or operators looking to scale their operations. Those are two the two best places to reach us. Fantastic. And uh, I hope we can do this uh, maybe, the, you know, this time next year and uh, re- reconvene. And if I'm up in your neck of the woods, which I probably will be at some point, maybe we can uh, get get a drink or a burger or something like that. Uh, I would love that. And we can we can we can fast forward, do it again and share notes. See, see what we got right and wrong. Right. Ex- exactly. All right, Vernon, I very much appreciate it. Thank you, Roger. Talk to you soon. 